Welcome back to the Management Lab. This is Sean Hansen from Saunders College of Business at Rochester Institute of Technology. And I'm Ori Gall from the University of Sydney Business School. Hi, Sean. Hi, Ori. You guys really wish you had we had been recording. Well, we were recording, but we all have trimmed it. But you just missed some real comedic gold. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were. Kind of Nothing is funny as circumcisions, really. <laughs> um, and you were as giggly as a little girl. That was pretty charming. I was, yes, as is uh, quite common with me. Um, anything interesting happened the last couple of weeks? We haven't talked in a couple of weeks. Do you know? I was, uh, I did have something that I wanted to share with you, but I honestly don't don't remember what it was. Um, so no, Ooh, nothing. It's going to make for good podcast. Yeah, I know. That's um, that's a hell of a start, isn't it? No, nothing, yeah. not, nothing that jumps to mind. How, how about you? How are things in in sunny Rochester? Uh, it's actually been very lovely here. So things are sunny. Um, other parts of the state are, or sorry, other parts of the country are in turmoil. We got a hurricane coming in down in Florida and things like that. But things are great here. Cool. I mean, not the hurricane, but the things are. We can't be- start talking about weather. We got to move on be past weather quickly. Yes. Okay. Okay. So this week we have a topic uh, that Uri's very uncomfortable with, and it's ESG. If you're not familiar with the acronym, it stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And ESG has become an entire uh, organizational, what would you call it, initiative, movement Mm -hmm. um, that has taken significant hold uh, within uh, most, I think think it's fair to say, Western um, business environments with a lot of corporate boards and and C-suites thinking about their their performance on these metrics of environmental, social, and governance measures. Any initial passes when you, as we sort of went through the research, just any gut reactions that you had? I know you said that you were sort of unfamiliar with the with the movement uh, at the outset. So I'm familiar with the whole notion of, of CSR, corporate social responsibility, with which I suppose is kind of an adjacent term there related although that i guess there's some differences in the scope of activities that they aim to um, to capture and measure and I, I mean i do have an initial reaction but i i don't want to preempt anything by by giving my impression on what i think of of this movement or initiative or set of standards uh i guess we can say that it's not entirely new right it's been around it was initiated it came out of a, some sort of a un call to action that took place in 2004 so it's been around for a while, but like you said, it's gained steam. Right. So this was Kofi Annan. Kofi Annan, then Secretary General of the United Nations, back in 2004, made this call to businesses around the world uh, through through his role in the UN to say, you know, sort of let's raise your game in terms of uh, looking after uh, social, environmental, and sort of good performance, ethical performance. Yes, which on the face of it seems like uh, you know a completely respectable and and positive initiative, which I suppose everyone expected to um to have a positive impact, both on on individual organizations and on society in general. But like with any or many other sort of large scale global initiatives. Um, there's always loopholes and and various ways in which different organizations can game the system. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's not to disqualify or to discredit the whole initiative. I think there's interesting motivations behind it, which uh, we'll get into. And it's had various types of impacts on different organizations, which which we'll talk about as well. Yeah. So let's quickly just define some of the principles. Again, ESG as an acronym stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And each of those dimensions of this um, of this broader initiative in contemporary business has sort of subdimensions. So on the and what this has become is basically a mechanism by which organizations and investors, maybe more most importantly, investors, can evaluate the performance of organizations on environmental measures on social measures and on governance measures. So I just want to quickly give a, a quick sense to the to the listeners. What do we mean by by those three measures? So environmental means things like 
How is the organization doing with regard to greenhouse gas emissions, air pollution, uh, water usage and recycling, um, impact on biodiversity, ultimately impacts on the environment? Social then would be things like, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Did you have an, a point you wanted to make? Uh, no, I was just trying to continue what you were saying, but keep going. You're doing a great job. Keep, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate the affirmation. Uh, social then would be things like um, workforce freedom, workforce association, uh, you know, freedom of association within the uh, workforce, uh, elimination of child labor or avoidance of child labor within a supply chain, um, commitment to training and education with regard to the members of an organization, uh, avoidance of discrimination and fostering of diversity and equity within the workforce, um, uh, OSHA, uh, sorry, I shouldn't use acronyms. OSHA stands for Occupational Safety and Health Administration in the U.S. So things like workplace health and safety, and then broader um, community impact, you know, impact on the communities in which an organization operates. All of those would be social measures of performance for an organization. Yeah, and then governance. And then governance is sort of a little more internally focused in terms of sort of how the organ. I guess that's inherent in governance, but in terms of how the organization operates itself. So things like uh, codes of conduct, business principles, and in, internally accountability, transparency and disclosure, um, uh, disclosure or transparency around executive pay, executive, uh, executive pay differentials with regard to the rest of the workforce, uh, avoidance of bribery and corruption, board diversity so the diversity and structure of the board of trustees for organizations and shareholder rights so i'm just picking a couple there are more and that's actually one of the things that i think we're going to get into is that i just for each of those dimensions i just gave you a couple different measures but that's mm -hmm. just a sampling right and there's actually there's more in each one and so when we're dealing with esg we're really dealing with a very in my reading, a pretty complex set of different measures for how organizations are contributing on these layers, right? On these dimensions of the impact on the environment, on social dimensions, and on uh, questions of governance. So let me let me ask you something, because it's not something that I'm entirely clear about. So we have all these various measurements that, captured, that aim to capture these three dimensions of ESG, now, in in practice, who who goes about measuring or 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 gauging these various dimensions for different organizations? Do we have independent agencies that kind of the, that are similar in nature, but perhaps to you know credit rating agencies that go around collecting data about organizations and, and rating them? Yes. So my understanding, and again, until get delving into this literature a little bit, uh, I also was not super familiar with it. Uh, but my understanding is that it's exactly that type of model. So you had, for a long time, the primary measurement agency was a, a firm called KLD. And so they had their own ESG measures. I think KLD has subsequently been subsumed within another firm called MSCI. I can go and look what the acronym stands for because I don't recall off the top of my head. Uh, but it's, it's another uh, essentially sort of private organization that does these types of evaluations uh, for firms or for investors with regard to firms. Yeah. So it's the, that's just one of them. There, there are many different um, rating agencies as it were that, that are in this, that operate in this space, correct? It's not just one. So I think that's right. And, and as we'll talk about with regard to challenges, I think there's quite a bit of um, variability and inconsistency in terms of how these get rated. But interestingly, when you look at the research liter literature, it seems like people are gravitating to a fairly small number of these services. So KLD seems like the one that most of the research that I've looked at that leads up to the last couple of years um, was the primary source for a lot of the analysis, the, the data that was being pulled into the analyses in these uh, studies. So a lot of the research we've looked at was kind of financial in nature, trying to draw links between ESG performance and financial performance. Do you think that might be a reason why a lot of this research looked at the same source of data? Do you, the, is, is that source of data, is 
KLD in some way finance or financial heavy? And I don't think that's because of the data sources. I think it's because of the nature of the phenomenon, which is that ESG as a phenomenon seems to be very much an investor focus, right? So it's things that investors are focusing on in evaluating firms. And it's also in terms of firms pursuing ESG objectives, it seems to be very much targeted at their investors, right? It is an effort that organizations are undertaking to make sure that investors who seek, you know, green firms, and I should say green and brown, one of the distinctions in this literature is that green firms are firms that are performing well on ESG, not just on the environmental, but on ESG metrics broadly. And brown firms are essentially firms that are performing poorly on ESG metrics. And so my read is that organizations that are pursuing a lot of I'm sure there may be very, there may be deep seated goodwill amongst the leadership of a lot of these organizations, but it does seem that a lot of these initiatives are targeted to the investor community and signaling corporate social responsibility, as you noted, a, a nearly equivalent or very related term to investors and trying to encourage that sort of interest and investment in their firms. But uh, I, I don't think that's necessarily, and I'm not sure that's what you were indicating, but I don't think that there's a, a necessarily cynical angle there, right? Because if organizations are doing the right thing, they want to signal to people and to potential investors, we are doing the right thing. And if investors get um, get the, the, you know, the information about this, they can invest in these companies and these companies are going to flourish as a consequence. And then other companies are going to be wanting to imitate what they're doing, and it's just going to create a, a a virtuous cycle of increasingly green organizations in the ESG context of the or meaning of the word. So I, I mean, it's a self-reinforcing you know cycle of of positive externalities, right? Right, absolutely. So I don't mean I certainly don't mean to imply that just because people are targeting something toward their investor community that they're necessarily cynical. I'm a believer in markets and I think firms should, you know, be should be transparent in sort of what the firm is doing so that they're encouraging investment based on uh real performance and real undertakings not just uh But okay, so that's that's great, but my reading of the research and correct me if you feel like I'm misrepresenting it is that the conclusions regarding the link between ESG performance and financial performance of companies is inconclusive, right? We don't have a clear indication that firms that perform well on ESG indicators are better financial performance as well. Um, so I think my read is, is I, I might use the word mixed instead of inconclusive. Because uh, it, it would appear that a lot of the research suggests that there are enhancements to performance, but then there is other research that will show detriments to performance as well. And so, and 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 some of that, I think, gets back to the complexity of those different dimensions, right? So a lot of the research doesn't focus on ESG writ large. It focuses on one of the dimensions, whether it's environmental, social, governance, or even sub-dimensions thereof. And so you might have firms or, or evidence that comes that is emergent that says, well, um, you know, firms that attend or perform well on these various metrics have better financial performance, but on other metrics within that big suite, maybe they perform worse or uh, have have you know, slight losses in terms of uh, differential gains. Just to you to offer an example, one of the studies that we looked at, which was in the Journal of Financial Economics, this was from Peterson et al. Uh, it was called Responsible Investing, the ESG Efficient Frontier. So sort of seeking, uh, seeing uh, when we look at different investment approach or different governance approaches, different uh, performance with regard to ESG metrics, what is the sort of right balance that firms um, should pursue, one of the things that, that emerges in that research is sort of the governance elements matter a lot. So if firms can show strong performance on the governance elements, the G elements in ESG, it, it you know, uh, fosters financial performance and subsequently investment. Whereas the environmental, which is, I think, often a focus in a lot of societal discourse that we have, 
matters a lot less. So a firm could have strong performance on environmental measures. And if they had weak performance on governance, then they're probably going to suffer in terms of overall financial performance of the performance of the firm. Uh, whereas if that were inverted and there's strong governance, but not necessarily significant movement on the environmental measures, they would still mm -hmm. perform very well. There was another study that we looked at by Lee et al. from uh, a journal called Sustainability that was published in 2021, if anybody is interested in looking into it. They looked at various aspects of organizational factors that have an impact on, on CSR and ESG scores. So they looked, for instance, at CEOs personality, which is something that we've talked about a few um, episodes ago. One of the findings that they um, came up with, which I thought was kind of interesting, um, or rather they they cite, oh, they, they reference somebody else's study in relation to this, that CEO's arrogance is negatively correlated with, um, with CSR, with corporate social responsibility behavior. So this one, actually, I'm going to augment it just slightly. This one was really interesting because CEO arrogance was negatively correlated, but CEO narcissism, which we have talked about before on this podcast, was actually positively correlated, which is really intriguing, right? Because it it seems like I can, once I hear that finding, I can sort of in my head start to explain it. Arrogance is, this is a firm where the person, you know, the CEO already thinks they know what everything you should do. Whereas CEO narcissism being positively correlated with ESG behavior it's kind of intriguing because it's it's kind of like people who want to make themselves look good. And again, I'm not just I'm not diminishing the ESG efforts, but that was kind of an intriguing uh, contrast to me because it could be that you know narcissistic CEOs want to get the love of the broader society and the investor community by pursuing uh, you know more visible uh, initiatives on all three of those dimensions. Right. Whereas for the arrogant CEO, the arrogant leader, so ESG can be seen as sort of a, a risk mitigating effort, whereas arrogant CEOs tend to be risk taking and therefore they would be less inclined to invest much effort into ESG initiatives. Right. So that's the explanation there. Right. Whereas for the narcissist CEO, it's more about, I guess, virtue signaling, if I were to take a um, use a different term there just to show to the world that they're engaging in these efforts and look at me and how great I'm doing and how, yeah. you know, how much progress yeah. I'm making. Yeah. That's interesting. So uh, Lee et al actually said a couple studies that suggest that there might be a U shaped relationship between financial performance. So essentially firms with very low um, ESG or corporate social, uh, you know, CSR type investment, tend to have higher financial performance than those with a medium investment in that regard. But then the very highest performing companies of all are those with fairly substantial, you know, high investments on the ESG front. Um, so it's kind of an interesting question that you have sort of the firms that don't care about it at all are performing well. The firms that care about it a lot are performing well. The firms that are lukewarm uh, seem to be those that struggle. And this is one of the things that I think we'll get to in a second. But one of the, the real questions I have here is the, the the question of causality, meaning, is this a correlation versus causation type thing? But on the face of it, it would seem just based on the disparity between the high and low investment types, that would seem to me an indication of correlation rather than causation. Because if it's a causal relationship what would be what would be the explanation for this disparity so if we're if we're talking correlation versus causation uh you know why would the the firms that invest most highly in esg be those that perform best well you could invert that and say well it's the firms that perform best have the highest profile um that have the freedom to perform to invest significantly into esg initiatives right and I, again, I don't want to jump ahead in our discussion, but one of the things you see is that ESG can be uh, a bit of a challenge in difficult financial times, right? In difficult, difficult financial times or markets that are under significant stress, you see a reduction in ESG investment and initiatives. And so it sort of makes 
ESG efforts look somewhat discretionary. But if you have firms that are already performing very well and getting rewarded by the marketplace, then they can put their discretionary funds or discretionary investment into those types of initiatives. And that's why I say it's not clear if it's the high financial performance that's driving the ESG investment as opposed to the ESG investment driving the high, the better financial performance. Yeah. Do you yeah, follow so me could here? Be the other way. Yeah, so it could be the other way around. It could be that performance leads to ESG investment rather than than ESG investment improving performance. Yeah. But there is also, you know, again, some evidence from various studies that there's, you know, you, you, again, depending upon the dimensions analyzed, where there's an improvement in financial performance and others where there might be a slight decline in financial performance. But even there, it does appear, and this I think is one of those things that we need to think about when we look at this is even there, it seems like there is an investor interest, right? An investor interest in ESG. Yeah. So you have individual investors as well as firms who seem to be significantly pursuing high ESG scores, right? Interested in and wanting to invest in firms with high ESG scores. Yeah, which which sort of makes sense, right? And but what we need to clarify the point as well that we don't we're not just talking about individual investors like you and me who have a bit of spare money and want to you know, buy stocks in a given company and we would prefer a, a green company as opposed to a company that that acts horribly and, and harms the environment and treats its employees and customers in really bad ways. Uh, we're not talking about only about the individual investors. We're also talking about institutional investors, right? Like right. mutual funds and investment banks and, and hedge funds and, and actors like this, which have a, a, a more significant impact on the market. Uh, yes, but but that doesn't exclude the individual investors, meaning individual investors can invest in funds, mutual funds that explicitly focus on um, ESG investment, right? That sort of state as one of their objectives, uh, you know, avoidance, there, there's the old um, uh, sin avoidance, I think is the way they traditionally called it, you know, like uh, avoiding uh, sin firms. Sin firms would be firms like tobacco, alcohol, um, other stuff, <laughs> things that might be traditionally, uh, that some types of investors might consider morally problematic, ethically. Yeah. Problematic. So there's, so there's probably some sort of a mutually reinforcing relationship between individual investors and, and mutual funds and what they, you know, what portfolio they, they present to their individual customers, right? Because if there's increasing pressure for individual investors to, um, Put their money into green companies, then mutual funds are going to be more likely to change their portfolios to uh, to address these concerns. Yeah, but again, looking at the um, the finance literature, it does suggest that there is a sufficient base of investors interested in green investments. You know, mm -hmm. uh, high perform uh, firms that are performing high on ESG metrics that their cost of capital is lower. For those not grounded in the finance literature, cost of capital means basically how easy is it for you to get funds, right? And resources into your firm through uh, either your debt or equity offerings. And so basically the the cost of capital, the research suggests that lower cost of capital means that there's a lot of people who want to invest in the green uh, green firms, right? The firms that are performing well on these metrics. So can I ask you something? If I were to take a step back from this for a second and, and and look at it look at it from slightly further away, if I'm a company and, and I want to figure out or develop a strategy like an ESG strategy and how much resources and effort and time do I want to put into developing an effective ESG strategy, given that we, as we said before, that the link between ESG investment and and financial performance is mixed would it be accurate to say that the motivation for many organizations would be to avoid punitive actions on the part of investors and investment companies rather than having esg initiatives directly contribute to the bottom line so um so i think that is one of the factors that we see here right so there's a there are there's quite a bit of research around sort of risk mitigation that esg 
does uh, offer a sort of hedge against risks for the firm. So there is good there is good evidence that we see in this research that uh, firms with higher ESG or or CSR you know corporate social responsibility ratings receive more lenient settlements from prosecutors if uh, you know in in situations where there might be um, a regulatory uh, misstep or something of that nature. So uh, and and I believe uh, also in multinational contexts there was sort of this suggestion that. Firms with stronger ESG scores are sort of more welcomed in the country context where they are perhaps not based or uh, they have their national foundation. Mm-hmm. So there is a bit of a risk mitigation element in these investments that you sort of, you know, you're investing on all these fronts to mitigate risk of people who might want to take you down for various reasons. Yeah. And also some of the research we looked at is based on institutional theory. So institutional theory largely sort of t- talks about uh, mimetic or imitative dynamics within marketplaces, right? So firms will often do things because other firms within their market are are doing similar things. Either because other firms in their market are doing a similar thing or because the regulatory expectations that they do things in a certain way. So things are done not necessarily because it's it makes sense I- internally, to you know, enact certain practices or adopt certain technologies. It's just because these are the expectations from the institute from the institutional environments, competitors, regulators, regulators, but whoever it might be. Um, and that's why companies do certain things that may not be entirely rational for internal reasons. So a lot of the research we saw looked at for today talked about institutional pressure pressures for companies to enact and invest time and resources into ESG initiatives, uh, which was one of the reasons that I asked the question before, whether it was, you know, these investments that, that companies put into ESG initiatives are um, more of a way to avoid institutional punishment, as it were, rather than because it makes internal sense to them to um, to engage in these initiatives. Yeah, I don't. I guess in my reading of it, it's not irrational, right? Even if you say it, there there might be lower return on assets or something, you know, various measures of financial performance might be lower. Uh, and there's some evidence that that's true. There's other evidence, again, depending on the the metric of ESG that's being pursued, that suggests that it, it could be better. But even when it's lower, it seems like there's a desire for it within the investor base and also in the workforce, right? So the evidence seems to suggest that employees, that ESG has a very strong and significant correlation with employee satisfaction. So people want to work for a firm that is more environmentally, socially, or governance, or with respect to governance, responsible and sort of pursuing those those broadly social or pro-social dimensions, right? Or aspects, right? So it seems like, at least with regard to something like employee satisfaction, I think the evidence is pretty clear there that employees are more satisfied. And this is consistent with research on sort of um, purpose, right? That a lot of, this is a bit of a generational thing, but that sort of pursuing uh, substantive purpose is a, is a significant thing in the workforce. And people want to work for someplace where they think, you know, they're, they're making a difference. And so investment in ESG dimensions definitely impacts employee satisfaction. Right. Which you're saying is a rational thing to do. With, and and I would agree with that. I guess it's just a matter of where you place the locus of, locus of rationality. So uh, from the institutional theory perspective, it might be more externally focused, right? It's, it's, it emanates from outside of the firm. Uh, whereas the other option, I guess, would be that it makes sense from a, like an internal operational perspective to do certain things or um, invest in certain initiatives. So um, one thing that I did want to bring up is, so some of the research we, we've looked at for today highlights the some of the problematic aspects of the way we measure ESG initiatives, given that it's such a global phenomenon. And 
that's so widespread that it encompasses many thousands of organizations the, the the question of how we measure esg initiatives and given how like you said before how many dimension it consists of it's it's a complex multifaceted initiative right um how we capture these data becomes a, a a really important factor in determining how well we can actually measure what organizations are doing and there was particularly one paper that we that we looked at by Kotsantanis and Serafim from Harvard Business School and they highlight four problematic areas in the way that we capture ESG data one thing they talk about is data inconsistency right which basically means that different organizations capture their ESG performance in different ways that are not you know not consistent with one another right um so even though we might be using the same words they actually mean very different things because they're based on different types of data yeah and the way they report their performance can be different right yeah exactly um there's also uh, an issue of benchmarking right because oftentimes organizational performance is captured in terms of um, how well uh, in a relative manner right so how well you perform relative to other organizations either in your industry or your market or location so there's different ways of of playing around with with um with these relative measurements to make your organization look better right yeah well and even I, I did find that particular study quite interesting on this, but uh, in general, my impression with regard to the KLD database, and I'm, uh, if if your understanding is different, I, I welcome your uh, reprimand. But it seems like a lot of the measures of performance on any given subdimension of ESG is just binary. So within KLD, it was sort of yes or no if you were doing certain things then you had a one if you were not doing those things you had a zero and that sort of binary measurement of you know all these different dimensions seems like a very blunt instrument to me which is a a problem in and of itself isn't it sure i think it's a huge problem like if you're assuming that you like we have one acronym and we think somehow that's going to capture the you know the degree to which organizations care about the world. What was the original report from Kofi Annan? It was called like, uh, who cares wins? Who cares wins? And so like all these measures are supposed to show the degree to which firms care about the impact that they have on society, right? And if we're trying, if we're hoping to get some measures to, to get at that kernel of how much firms care, it seems like these these you know binary measures on somewhat arbitrary metrics are an awfully blunt instrument to get at that. Well, the other thing that flows from it, and I'm curious to see what you think about this, is that each I think we've alluded to this already, but each of the three dimensions are quite different, right? There's overlap. There's sort of conceptual overlap. And I think this is why I've struggled to to provide a single umbrella term for all three. If you if you think of them all as sort of again trying to signal care about the world, um, that's great. But they're quite different, right? And so measuring the interactions between the three dimensions seems like something that the research literature has really struggled with. So uh, as I noted earlier, a lot of the research has chosen one dimension, whether the environmental, the social, or the governance, and just zeroed in on that. And you know, from an analytical perspective, that makes a lot of sense. But I do think it's still uh, we still need to sort of suss out the degree to which these things interact, and can we get at a more a broader perception of the interaction between the three? Yeah, and you think it's problematic that they're conceptually different to one another from a a, a measurement perspective, or from a conceptual, or maybe even ethical perspective. So I can think of many organizations that might be that might perform extremely well on the E front the environmental front because they you know they invest a lot of money and and r&d into developing sustainable technologies and, and ways of of operating and producing if they're a, you know a production company whatever it is or you know green supply chains um or data centers or what have you right so many organizations spend a lot of resources resources into um developing this dimension of the esg framework but that doesn't necessarily mean that they would have uh um uh, 
invested a similar amount of resources or time or effort into the other dimensions just because they're so distinct from from the e dimension yeah uh, i i agree completely and and i think that latter point is what i'm getting at is i don't think it's the differences in measurement right you can come up with ways of measuring things that have enough consistency it seems like it hasn't happened quite in this domain yet but that can be done i think it's the conceptual distinction between these three dimensions that makes it hard to put them all under one rubric. And I think that's one of the things that we wrestle with in this domain. We we're treating it and we're talking about it as though it is a consistent or single phenomenon. And really we're talking about very different dimensions of running a business. Yeah. And I guess it's only really a, a uniform phenomenon to the extent that it's been created that way in 2004. And not for any other reason, because from an an internal organizational perspective, like we said before, there are we we talking about three very different aspects of running a business that don't have to correlate with one another in any organic way necessarily. And I think when you you know when you come up with with such a high level framework to try and not enforce, maybe encourage good behavior on the part of so many organizations across so many different domains and jurisdictions and countries. Um, it's not surprising that we see such mixed varying outcomes. And I thought there was one one paper in particular that we looked at that that tried to capture this diversity in, in consequences or reactions to um, ESG initiatives. And this is a paper by Clementino and and Perkins in the Journal of Business Ethics that that got published a couple of years ago, and they they've looked at how companies respond to ESG initiatives, or ESG ratings rather. So companies that get rated by these um, agencies that we talked about before, um, because a lot of research kind of accepts perhaps tacitly that companies react in a uniform way by complying with whatever expectations these agencies place on them through their ratings and they just conform to the ratings and or try to do better the ratings agencies or the investors the rating agencies so they look at rating rating agencies or both no no just agencies okay, okay. yeah and they've um they've done interviews with companies in Italy and they've derived these this what i thought was a very interesting flame, framework to dis- distinguish between four archetypical reactions to ESG ratings. So they talk about passive conformity, which is kind of similar to the you know, idea of gaming the system, which we talked about before. So or greenwashing, that's an older term sort of in marketing. Yeah. So yeah. It, it focuses on improving your disclosure processes, right? The the outward facing mm-hmm. interactions with the with a rating agency without changing too much of what you actually do internally as an organization. Um, so it's more of a uh, you know an impression management tool or technique, and that that was the most common response that they found, which, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting. And then they was the passive. That's the passive yeah. conformity. They had active conformity, which is a more meaningful, substantive change in how you operate as a business to respond to ESG ratings, which I guess was the original intent behind the, you know, w- when the initiative was was announced in 2004. But that was much less common. And then they had, um, they identified two forms of resistance, passive and, and um, active resistance, um, which either ignores the ratings outright, that's the passive form of it, or min- tries to minimize the impact of the ratings, which is the active form of it. But it basically tries to, um, or you know, it tries to not uh, initiate any business changes or modifications as a consequence of the ratings. So I thought it was interesting that uh, that the most common reaction to ESG rating was just to try and and essentially do um, engage in impression management, so as to appear to be doing well but in fact you're not doing much at all yeah yeah so again uh it feeds into your cynicism but it seems like there's maybe some evidence for it right that that a lot of firms are just trying to look good on these metrics because they know people are looking at it 
what's interesting is that the study came up with a couple of they articulated a couple of different reasons to explain why a given company would would engage in one of these four reactions right passive passive or active conformity or resistance and they found that companies were or were more likely to conform to the requirements and criteria of their rating agencies when they believe that a positive ESG score, a high ESG score, or inclusion in in the index in the in the measurement exercise was gonna help them improve their reputation among investors, right? Which kind of reinforces the whole cynical outlook on this on this exercise and on what was happening there. And also they found that companies were more likely to exhibit a positive what they call strategic posture towards ratings where managers believed that doing so would help or that managers believed would was that they were going to be able to do this in a way that was consistent with their um, overall strategic objectives. In other words, where they felt like it wouldn't be too disruptive to their business goals. Yeah. Which again reinforces this um I guess not necessarily cynical, but maybe a more utilitarian view of of what this exercise is about. Yeah. I, I think I don't know that cynicism is the right word, but I do think it's a complex it's a complex phenomenon. So again, I the other challenge in evaluating any of the ESG stuff, to me, gets back to this causality versus correlation thing. Because again, you when there's evidence that uh, for example, um, so there's there's two interesting bits, right? That that firms that have uh, high uh, high levels of ESG seem to work well, but particularly for firms with significant advertising budgets, and that's kind of interesting because that could you could read that two ways, which is one that the only firms for whom ESG the firms that ESG benefits the most are those that can talk about it the most, right? That can sort of call attention to what they're doing the most. The other alternative is maybe firms that are performing very well are the ones that can talk about it the most, right? So which is the causal factor and which is the outcome? And I, I don't know that we have the answer to that. And I think that's, to me, one of the really interesting things about this whole, dom- whole domain. Another one, and this is one of the really clear correlations that I have an explanation for in my head, but I don't know that it's empirically accurate which is there seems to be a real, a significant gender link mm-hmm. in firms. So for example, firms that are headed by a female CEO have significantly higher ESG scores than those that are headed by a male CEO. Mm-hmm. And even firms that are headed by a male CEO that has a daughter have significantly, at least statistically significantly, higher ESG scores than those that are headed by a firm with a man without a daughter so can i ask you something yeah sure when i saw the first finding that you mentioned that that firms with a female ceo um had higher esg scores were those scores higher because the ceo was female or because of other initiatives that the female ceo put in place yeah so you're going to be annoyed but my answer goes back to this this causality question, because in my head, I would say, yes, it's because I would say firms that have a few, I, I, I am an old man. I might slip into stereotypes, but I think women are nicer than men. <laughs> I think women care more about other people than men did, did care about other people. Right. And so I honestly think that, you know, in, in my head, the explanation, is female leaders tend to care more about being good as an organization and trying to do good as an organization. But you could just as easily argue that a firm that would put a, a firm with a higher ESG score already is the type of firm that would put that would want their leadership is more likely to have a woman as a CEO, let's say. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that causality can absolutely flow in either direction. And I think, you know, I sort of lean toward one explanation, but I don't have a good empirical basis for that. It's just sort of my gut feel. What's your gut feel on that one? I would think there's probably a, uh, it's a situation of a bit of both that might be at play there, right? Because it's certainly possible, what you said before, that female leaders tend to be more 
I guess, high, have a higher sensitivity to doing good by their customers and employees and, and the communities within which they're embedded as a company. But it's, I imagine it must be also true that organizations that have a reputation, or not a reputation, a, a culture of inclusivity and equity and um, green practices are those organizations, like you said before, that are going to be more likely to put a, a female um, in the CEO office. So, and I, I, I yeah, don't think these two go either way. Yeah. And these two explanations are not mutually exclusive, right? So one thing before we wrap up with implications, one thing that was really interesting to me is that none of the research literature touches on the controversies that have emerged around ESG. So ESG has kind of been a controversial topic. For those of you who have just heard about it for the first time on this show, you, you won't know this, but over the last couple of years, it's been kind of controversial. Because in the broader societal discourse, there's been a lot of people asserting that basically the whole ESG framework is about a way for financial elites and the Davos crowd to sort of uh, structure society and 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 structure incentives in a way that uh, encourages the outcomes that they want. Mm -hmm. And what's your take on this? Are you um, do you subscribe to that point of view? Um, so I do, uh, no, I would not say I, sub I subscribe to it, but I have some sensitivity to it. So I am not a big fan of the World Economic Forum. And that when I refer to the Davos crowd, that's what I'm referring to is the World Economic Forum that meets in Davos, Switzerland every year. And it's where the rich and powerful get together and uh, talk about their vision of the world. And that, I mean, it's certainly happening every year, right, where they're getting together and talking about the vision of the world. And I do think that ESG metrics and ESG, ESG scoring is one of the things they focus on. And so I do have some sensitivity to that. I don't think, uh, I think there's enough evidence uh, when we talk about implications, I'm going to say, I think there's enough evidence that people broadly, investors, employees, and others are interested in the ESG performance of firms that, that it should matter for firms. But how would that um, be an instrument? Yeah. That might be used to assert control, global control over the financial world is through the channeling of investment funds into specific firms that perform well on various indicators that are controlled by them, or is it by directly controlling, oh, not directly, but more directly controlling the behavior of or behavior of organizations through the application of these, um, uh, you know, external pressure points on them? What, which one is it? No, I think it's through the flow of. I think it's the flow of financial resources right okay i think it's through the flow of financial resources so basically if you're rewarding firms that adhere to your and there is an ideological element here so even you do see in the literature that basically like democrat firms that are led from a, a democratic or what you would usually call liberal or progressive perspective if if the leader of the firm adheres to that ideological perspective they tend to be tend to have high, higher ESG scores and those led by Republicans or conservative uh, leadership tend to have lower ESG scores. So there's definitely an ideological alignment element here. And so I think the idea would be if you can channel resources and funds to firms that adhere with your ideological priors, um, that's the argument is that, that that's how, you know, the Klaus Schwab's of the world could, can be restructuring yeah economic systems in their image. Yeah, I, I get that. But my problem with this way of thinking about this is that I think there's a lot of, of other types of dynamics at play here. And many of these dynamics, I would argue, are outside of the scope or outside of the control of any any small group of super financial, uh, super influential financial actors that might meet in Dav Davos every year. Um, I think there's a great deal of self-reinforcing expectations within various institutional environments, industries, markets, countries that compel organizations to act in certain ways, like, like we said before, through the force of isomorphism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that these dynamics are are directly or fully controlled by any anybody, right? It's kind of scattered or distributed across many different organizations and these are sort of self-reinforcing expectations that develop through the interactions between different organizations so just because somebody yeah. else is doing you know p 
paying a lot of attention to ESG and how they perform on ESG scores. That must be important. So I must be doing, I, I have to do the same thing so that I don't get left behind. And then if I'm doing this, then everybody else is going to do this. And it's just kind of a, you know, like, like wildfire. <laughs> and that's the way, that's the way these things spread. I mean, this is a well-known phenomenon. So it might've started, I, I don't even know if that's true, but it might've started as a reflection or, um, you know, through somebody's vision to exert control in that way, although that doesn't doesn't seem to be the case because it came out of the UN. But you know what? I'm I'm totally speculating. Well, I think the UN. So I agree with you on all of these things. Honestly, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I was just intrigued by the fact that the research literature doesn't seem to even acknowledge that there is controversy around it. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, I, I agree with you completely, although I, I will just note that the, the UN and the World Economic Forum are not disconnected, right? I mean, they're not formally aligned, but the, you know, these, are, these are the types of people who will tend to align around certain perspectives about the world and might try to advocate for uh, similar solutions to global issues, let's put it that way. Yeah, so you would have the same lobby groups roaming the the hallways of both of these organizations. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the people in both would, would know one another. And, and I'm sure there's plenty of people from the United Nations who, who attend uh, the world economic forum in Davos every year. Yeah. So uh, again, I'm not, I'm not attesting to the more conspiratorial view of ESG. I just, I think it's the type of thing that, that we, that one has to acknowledge since there's a lot of people out there who hold that perspective. And, and every once in a while you do get things that, that do sort of make me scratch my head. Like, I, I don't know if you saw this, but Nigel Farage in great Britain, he was the head of what is the party that sort of pushed for Brexit reform, the reform party or reform UK, but Nigel Farage, uh, who was the head of that uh, at the time and, and has been, uh, there was a story that came out a couple months back that uh, he basically his bank told him that he couldn't bank with them anymore and no other bank would allow him to open an account. So you have a guy who's suddenly who's a prominent figure in Great Britain who's suddenly being told that no bank will take his business because they don't like his ideological perspective. And so when you see things like that, it does sort of make you say, hmm, are we forcing a kind of conformity here? around certain principles that that could get very uncomfortable for a lot of people if it's taken to an extreme. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting how these things tend to go together in, in terms of people's ideologies, the adherence to, you know, being environmentally green and 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 socially inclusive and, you know, the whole this whole notion of, of social justice and and good governance, um, because like we said before, these things don't have to go together, but they seem to be ideologically attached to one another. And many people who, who believe in one set of idea, ideas or ideals also subscribe to um, the other two dimensions. And I think it goes in both directions. So only yesterday I heard on the radio here that uh, in Germany, AFD, which is a, a party like some, some people say, I mean, it's a far right party. Many people call them neo-Nazis. And they're gaining a lot of power in Germany. It's now like the second largest party in Germany, isn't it? AFD is uh, what alternative for Deutschland? Yeah, it is. So it's becoming, yeah, yeah, I think it's about to become the second largest party. And what they believe in is, so they, they don't believe in global warming. They think it's a hoax. And yeah, yeah. they're obviously not very socially progressive because they're outright racist. I mean, it's clearly a right wing. It's it's a right wing populist party. Well, right? yeah. yeah, people call them Nazis in suits. People in Germany call them Nazis in suits. You know, but it's just funny how these things go together. Like, what does the environment has to do with racism? Nothing. But these things seem to be attached to one another on on both sides of the of the conversation. Well, I'm not sure there's a conversation going, but on both sides of the aisle, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, there's a conversation not going, uh, yeah. but yes, yeah, yeah. I think um, I think that's that's one of the really interesting dynamics is when you have a lot of uh, you know you have a real uh, initiative within business, but there's also these ideological uh, whispers around it that uh, things can get quite convoluted. But so if, if so, we, what are your takeaways? Yeah, well, I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna ask you the same question. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. Okay. But I was going to post it slightly um, I differently. Can Can I ask? Okay, go for it. So go for it. If we were to talk about the implications for business, if you're an organization mm-hmm. thinking about ESG and if whether the whether I want to do it and if I do, how much time and resources resources they want to pour into it, where do you stand given everything we've talked about? So I think all organizations should be thinking about it if they're not already pursuing these initiatives and and thinking about it in a sort of very deliberative way. Um, the the note that I mentioned earlier, or actually this sort of harkens back to something we talked about several episodes back around the Gen Z, uh, you know, the next generation emerging. It's very clear that they care a lot about hmm. these various factors. They care a lot about purpose within organizations. And I think there's good evidence to suggest that um, that they want to work at organizations that have sort of that purpose motive or purpose drivers, and ESG does align with that. So I think at a very minimum, organizations that want to attract good talent today need to be thinking about uh, their performance on these measures. Mm-hmm. So that alone, uh, to me, means you can't ignore it for sure, and you need to be very conscious of it. Now, I think the next question is sort of how do you go about it? And based on the evidence, I think if you had to choose a letter to start thinking about first, governance, the G would be the first one. And from the outside looking in, from sort of societal perspective, that might seem like the most boring one. But I think the evidence suggests that attendance to that those governance dimensions and sort of how you structure your organization, the de- degree of transparency that you foster you know, your your mechanisms for reporting and making sure that you are doing, you know, exercising good practices on those fronts. That's the first measure to my mind that needs to be uh, attended to and locked down by, by organizations undertaking this. And you're saying this is the first one because we have evidence that this one, that the G component is the most closely associated with financial performance. Is this the reasoning? Yeah, so maybe I'm a... <laughs> Maybe I'm a bloodthirsty capitalist, but yeah, I mean that's to my mind that 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 it seems like that's the one that that matters the most in terms of the performance of the organization, mm-hmm. and so if you're going to start somewhere, uh, I think the G is 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 where to start. At the same time, I do think it it then has implications for the other dimensions, right? So the way you structure your board, board diversity, and things like that, which are members of of governance, I think then. It, might offer might enable the the pursuit of the social and the environmental dimensions as well what do you think do you buy that do you think g's the right place to start or you disagree with me i think the evidence suggests that g has the most direct relationship to firm performance and assuming that's what business leaders are interested in uh, that would seem like a reasonable conclusion so i i think i'm with you on this one Okay, start with the G. That'll yeah. <laughs> that'll be our uh, the name of the episode. Start with the G. The the social elements. I will say at the same time, some of the social elements when it comes to the metrics, is some of them seem like pretty pretty much what you would call no brainers, right? Like avoidance of child labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, good lord, if the firm cares about its social performance at all, it should be attending to those types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, again, I think those could flow once you have uh, governance locked down pretty well within the firm. The other measure or the other insight that I draw is that firms should be very conscious about how they're going to measure these things. So, um, again, given that there is uh, widespread variability in in uh, reporting mechanisms, I think uh, you shouldn't take it as a default that that you just rely on the rating agencies to do it, but think very consciously about how to do reporting within the firm and focus on those measures of transparency in terms of performance on ESG. Because I think this is a, this is the type of phenomenon that is iterative, meaning that organizations can, can pursue um, continuous improvement. I, I think most organizations are not going to immediately go from being a Brown firm to being a green firm, right? Where you're all of a sudden doing great on all three dimensions. I think it's the kind of thing that has to be fostered iteratively uh, by by an organization. 
And that's why I, I don't think there's anything wrong with choosing one of the three dimensions and, and prioritizing that first before turning to others. So we have a couple of takeaways. We still have lots of questions and maybe our listeners might be left with lots of questions, but that's okay. Cause I think this is a domain where there is, there are still lots of questions to ask and, and answer and explore. Um, but let's go ahead and tie a bow on that and let's move to a few of our favorite things. So I think for our favorite things this week, we're going to loop back to a prior category because we uh, are not uh, inventive enough to just keep coming up with new categories. <laughs> so I think we were going to do uh, some of our favorite podcasts again. Yeah. You want to start or you want me to start? I, I can start. So my podcast of choice, and I, I think I'm getting the name correctly, um, is the Mindspace podcast by by Sean Carroll. I think it's Mindscape, no? Yeah, I, I also listen to um, Sean Carroll's uh, podcast, uh, The Physicist, right? You're talking about The Physicist, Sean uh, Carroll? The Theoretical Physicist, yeah. Yeah, it's Mindscape. Yeah. So you just inverted the C and the P, that's all. Mindscape. Uh, so everybody who doesn't know, Sean Carroll is, a, I guess, is a pretty well-known public figure. He's a, you know, a science educator. He's appeared on a bunch of different documentaries about theoretical physics. He's an extremely well-spoken and interesting and entertaining um, speaker. And he has this podcast where he has various people on to talk about some, I guess, high-level, um, semi-scientific, technological, philosophical issues. It's kind of a jack-of-all-trades. And he oftentimes has really profound, inter interesting conversations with knowledgeable individuals about various things that have to do, for instance, with AI, with... Mm -hmm. Uh, with philosophy, with advances in science, with various social issues in the U.S. and beyond. Um, and just yesterday, I was listening to a conversation that he had with um, with somebody about um, large language models and whether whether or not they're um, they're sentient, whether they're conscious entities or not. I I listened to the same one. Uh, I believe her name was uh, yeah uh, Yine Choi. Um, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that I'm pronouncing yeah. that right, uh, but I I think it was something. Uh, Ye Jin Choi. I just looked it up. Ye Jin Choi. Yeah, it was really good. Really good. Yeah, she, she's a mathematician, right? Um, so I don't know what her background is. That's a good question. I For some reason, I thought she might be a computer science person. but uh... Uh, well, well, definitely with a background in mathematics, though. And I I was relieved to, um, to learn that um, their conclusion was that um, LLMs are not sentient. Yeah, so that was it, hers, it, um... which I agree with. She's in a better position yeah. to make that assertion than I am, but I agree with it nevertheless. I, I'm I'm actually not sure about that at all. Yeah. Um, I actually thought that some of the conversation was, I don't naive is not the right word, but uh, I guess just different and maybe flatter, superficial in some ways than compared to other conversations I've heard about AI in general and LLMs in particular that involved philosophers, um, which I think, you know, uh, obviously a different perspective from which to examine things, but I just find the language of mathematics somewhat limiting in some ways when, when you engage in, in these sort of conversations about consciousness and what does it mean to be conscious and how can we say that people are conscious? How do we know that we are, con you know, all these deeply philosophical questions that just find the mathematical language somewhat limiting, but nevertheless, I thought it was an in interesting conversation. And the podcast in general um, oftentimes has very, very engaging conversations. So I, I highly recommend it. What's your podcast? Mine is The Fifth Column. So I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's um, uh, three guys, uh, Camille Foster, uh, Michael Moynihan, and what's the guy from Reason Magazine? I should know. Um, Matt Welch. Matt Welch. Uh, so the three of them get together, talk about things. Uh, Matt Welch is certainly a, 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 he's from Reason Magazine, so he's a libertarian. Camille Foster and Michael Moynihan. Is he the guy who made the movie about what is what is a woman? Is that the no, same guy? No, that's Matt Walsh. I don't think he's a libertarian. I think he is a sort of straight conservative, I guess you would say. 
Uh, Matt Welch is a Matt Welch is uh, again he's an editor from Reason, so he's um, he's a he's a pretty solid libertarian. Uh, Michael Moynihan, I think he's a former journal. I shouldn't say former journalist, but I don't think he works for anywhere but the Fifth Column podcast anymore. But I think he used to work at Vice News. And uh, Camille Foster is sort of a jack of all trades. He writes. He uh, has his own firm now i think uh, but anyway I, I find their their discussions uh very refreshing they talk about all kinds of different factors they are very much advocates for free speech um they're sort of free speech absolutists which is true of myself as well and uh and i i, I like their take on a lot of different issues because they don't tow any party lines on political dynamics they're willing to sort of say what they think is right and uh, and make fun of everybody on all different sides of the U.S. political spectrum, which I love. But would their conversation be U.S. centric? Yeah, it tends, well, I think it tends to be U.S. centric, uh, but certainly there would be uh, topics of global interest that they do uh, cover. Would it center on political issues? Uh, I would say. I would say. Politics is definitely a key focus, but uh, uh, social discourse, right? So a lot of different aspects of sort of the the social dynamic within our society. Sorry, that's redundant. But a lot of the dynamics of sort of societal discourse, I think they they tend to hit. Why, is there a reason why they call their podcast uh, The Fifth Column? Do you know? It's an interesting name. The Fifth Column? I think they see themselves as sort of a little different than everyone else. So like they have this whole little quote or this whole little intro that's quite funny where they talk about um i don't know where the quote is taken from but it's somebody saying you know other avenues of attack the fifth column so i i think they see themselves as sort of you know uh, a little orthogonal to other uh, other ways of thinking and willing to think and speak freely i will check it out i think as we're nearing the uh, the election in the U.S., things are heating, and you know, with Trump's trial and everything else that's happening there, things are heating up again, uh, heating up again rather, and uh, it's going to become it's going to be interesting to follow that. Yeah, it's given me an ulcer. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I hide from anyone the fact that I am very unhappy about the idea that we're going to see a rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Uh, I can't imagine a worse possible scenario. And it seems like it's coming on like a freight train, unavoidable. On that positive note. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wrap up. All right. Thanks, Uri. Thanks, Sean. Thank